0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hello there, how are you? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy, and I'm here in Los Angeles. How you doing? I hope you're well. I have... On the program today, Matt Bell. His critically acclaimed new novel, Appleseed, is available from Custom House Books. It is the official July pick of the TNB Book Club. The TNB Book Club is an offshoot of the nervousbreakdown.com, my online culture magazine and literary community. It's been around for 15 plus years. Is that real? The book club has been around for more than a decade. If uh, you want to find out more about that and sign up, just go to nervousbreakdown.com and click on Book Club in the menu bar. So Matt Bell and I will be in conversation momentarily. The new novel again is called Appleseed. Matt Bell is also the author of the novels Scrapper and In the House Upon the Dirt Between the Lake and the Woods, the latter of which made him a finalist for The Young Lions, Fiction Award. Matt Bell has also authored a short story collection entitled A Tree or a Person or a Wall, and he has written a nonfiction book about the classic video game Baldur's Gate 2. His writing has appeared in a variety of publications, including the New York Times, Tin House, Conjunction's and uh, American short fiction, among others. He teaches creative writing at Arizona State University. Today's episode is brought to you by William Morrow Books, publisher of Count the Ways, the new novel from New York Times bestselling author Joyce Maynard. Count the Ways tells a mesmerizing story of a family, from the hopeful early days of young marriage to parenthood, divorce, and the costly aftermath that ripples through all of the affected lives. Ann Hood calls Count the Ways, quote, rich and complex, brilliant and heartbreaking. And Carolyn Levitt calls it, quote, exactly the book we all need now. Count the Ways deals with new love, broken marriages, family tragedy, parent-child estrangement, and gender transition, among other things. That's Count the Ways by Joyce Maynard, available now from William Morrow Books. Okay, so let's get to today's conversation. My guest again is Matt Bell. His new novel, Appleseed, is out there now from Custom House Books. It is the official July pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. This is Matt Bell's third appearance on the Other People podcast. Really enjoyed catching up with him, hearing about what he's been up to since last we spoke, and learning about all that went into Appleseed, the new novel, which is uh, certainly epic in scope. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Here it is. This is Matt Bell, and the new novel, one more time, is called Appleseed. Appleseed. You know the story takes
1: place over a thousand years. It starts in the late eighteenth century uh, with the mythological retelling of Johnny Appleseed, uh, it picks up again in the late twenty first century with a story about uh, environmental resistance groups who are trying to stop a uh, an attempt to geoengineer the stratosphere in sort of a late climate change America. Um, And then the last storyline is 700 years in the future, uh, taking place in like a late glacial North America, uh, where there's sort of one living being living atop this glacier in a research station. Um, And he eventually goes on a kind of a cross-country trek looking for what might be the remainder of humanity. Um, Yeah, so sort of the scope starts in 1799, ends a thousand years after that, um, and sort of weaving these three storylines in and out of each other as we go.
0: Okay. What I was thinking to myself as I was reading is like, like how, like this is such a big thought project. Uh, I'm always amazed when people are able to work in this vein, you know, like it's, it's one of these storylines would be a beast to tackle, right. but especially the one a thousand years in the future, there's so much imaginative work that goes into it. Uh, also so much research I would imagine. Can you talk a little bit about like, how you got there and like, like, how did these ideas originate for you? Like, wh- what are the original or the early inklings?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's funny because I think the at the end, you're always trying to end up with something that feels like it was designed, but of course, it's more haphazard along the way. Um, I really started with the 1799 storyline. Um, the initial uh, inspiration for the book was I was uh, reading, like, all of Michael Pollan's books. I was, you know, sort of reading all of these books about about food and agriculture, and um, I was reading his book, The Botany of Desire, and uh, in that he talks about the as one of the, the domesticated um, plants he discusses. And he starts talking about Johnny Appleseed and that sort of folktale, which was something I, I liked a lot as a kid. And in his discussion of it, he starts talking about uh, John Chapman, the sort of historical person that Johnny Appleseed is based on. Um, as this American Dionysus, sort of Dionysian figure. And uh, I was out for a run listening to it, and I just thought, well, oh, it'd be fun to write Johnny Appleseed as like a literal Dionysian figure, like a satyr or a fawn. Um, so the initial idea was sort of just like that part of the story, like to start with this sort of half-human, half-animal uh, version of Johnny Appleseed, um, thinking that would be an interesting setting. Uh, but pretty quickly it sort of like started getting bigger and sort of feeling these other time zones it took me a long time to figure out what they were um but i you know knew i was writing about the environment i knew i was writing about climate change um and i think uh obsessed with about that's not like a story that takes place in one place right It's not like you can't visit climate change in one specific instance i mean you can but you don't know like all of climate change the so sort of the totality of it um in the way that it's sort of spread across time and space. And so, like, the long storyline was partly a way to try to tell a story about climate change and about humanity's impact on the non-human world um, in a more total way, as opposed to maybe one of those three storylines. Um, but you're right. I mean, there, there, really, each kind of novel length, there sort of is like a three-novel build to the book. Um, and in early drafts, it was much longer and really was like 360,000 word books that were sort of weaved together in that way. Um, the uh, the far future one, in some ways, was easier to write than the near future one. Is you can kind of make anything up you want if you put it far enough in the future, right? Like things that are 50 years in the future, you have to extrapolate from sort of current politics and current science. Um, so uh, in many ways, like John's storyline in the middle of the book was the one that was the hardest to, to get the situation right, uh, because it wasn't as... Uh, fantastical in certain ways it had to be more grounded to be believable
0: yeah 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 okay so first things first you said that you got the idea for the 1700s the 18th century storyline while you were on a run and i know from observing your twitter that you take these wonderful trail runs out in the desert uh you teach at arizona state is that right Yep. Okay. Yeah. So you're living, my, I've been there seven years or something now. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I think when we first met, you were living in Michigan
1: still. Yes. Yeah. I think I, the first time we talked was in Michigan, and then I think I talked to you in LA, but I might have already been here then. I think I, you know, was in LA when I talked to you, but I was probably
0: in Arizona by then. Okay. So it makes sense to me. It makes a certain kind of sense to me that somebody, well, first of all, somebody who's trail running, because I'm a hiking person. Right. has some affection for being outdoors. Um, you talked about getting up at four in the morning, which I guess you might have to do in the hotter months just to like right. <laughs> be able to run without keeling over. <laughs> um, but it seems like there's a logic to that, that somebody who lives in the desert in a place that you know, it routinely gets like 120 degrees in the summer yeah. would have some sensitivity to climate change. Uh, like am I? Is that too simplistic? Uh, no, of no, thought? I think
1: that's absolutely right. I mean, it's a um, it's a really obvious place to think about it in some ways because such an extreme environment. Um, and, I mean, you know, people have lived in. The uh, the landscape where, where Phoenix is for a long time, you know, the original irrigation channels that uh, Phoenix relies on were made by the Hohokam people like a thousand years ago. Like people have lived here for a long time, but never in like numbers, like four million people living in this desert valley where there's no water is like sort of obviously um, a fraught idea. And so you sort of notice it and you see it. Um, i uh I think I've grown really sensitive to the sprawl here because of just the way Phoenix is sort of shaped you know sort of this big flat city that's always growing on the edges um there's a there's a part early in the book where the or Chapman and his brother Nathaniel are are standing on a mountain and they're looking out at where they're gonna plant that year and Nathaniel's giving this sort of manifest destiny speech right it's like one day all this will be houses and all this will be cities and you know we'll cut down all these trees and make room for people and uh and and I think that I was partly inspired from like hiking here with my my dad, who has maybe a little more manifest destiny in his heart than I do. And he'd get we'd climb these mountains on the edge of Phoenix and he'd look out at the like the edges of the valley and be like, one day that will all be houses. The city will just keep growing and growing. And I'm like, no, anything but that, right? right. Like, that's the last thing I want for this place, is there to be like another four million people here. Um and uh and i i think so that sort of tension between and i grew up among environmental people and and hunters and and outdoorsmen and we spent a lot of time backpacking hiking grew up in the country um in, Michi- in michigan between, yeah in michigan um that tension between like loving the outdoors and loving the natural beauty and also like seeing its usefulness for people you know or the way it can be sort of bent toward toward what people want um I think that's something that's been, in, you know, in play in me for a long time and uh and Phoenix is a good place to think about it cuz it's so obvious on the surface that it's happening.
0: Yeah, I feel some similarity there living in Los Angeles, which is the most right. built out city. I mean, like you talk about Phoenix having room to grow at the edges in theory, like I feel like Los Angeles is just done. You know, there's not even a square it's a barely a square inch of open space in this entire city. And you have 10 million people. I mean, I guess we have a little bit more water than Phoenix, but not much, you know. not. And it's much. all the same water, right? I mean, it's all this Colorado River project. Like, you, you know, your water
1: situation is tenuous the same way ours is. It's the Colorado River project and the Hoover Dam and all, you know, these sort of... Um, it's weirdly linked. Like, the, the sort of future of the cities are are part of the same system, you know.
0: And in your book, the the speculative fiction has the Western United States emptying out like yeah. that's the future you're envisioning. Uh, I'm wondering, and this is, I guess, part of a larger question that I have for you around research, you know, for a book like this, but like how much of that hues to research that you may have done or what scientists are envisioning for the future based on data and climate models. Um, I uh, I don't know if I can speak for all climate
1: scientists, but I think um, one of the things that I, I'm interested in is like I think there there seems to me like you have to stop you trying to make every inch of land sort of productive or habitable by people. Like some of it will have to be left alone so that it can be, you know, we have to have a balance between sort of the world and, and the world we inhabit. Um, and so I think one way of thinking about that was like, what if we... Left some of the land to sort of be itself again. Um, and if that's even possible at the time of this book, like I think right now, if you abandoned the West, the West would regenerate in a certain way. And I think in the future of this book, it seems doubtful to some extent. There's so little living there. Um, I was thinking a little bit about I trying to use terms maybe the opposite of the way they're used. Uh, in mining, like, uh, they talk about uh, like sacrifice zones, which is what the West is called in the book. And a sacrifice zone is the landscape you sacrifice to the mine around it. Um, so like you blow the top off a mountain so you can get the coal or something. And that's like a sacrifice zone. You sacrifice the wildlife that lives there so you can have the coal. Um, and so in, in the novel, they're using that term to give up the West so we can protect the people who are left, you know, um, and sort of move them to a place that's habitable still in the book or can be made habitable. Um, so I think that was part of sort of thinking through that for me, um, I was thinking a lot about the national parks. I mean, the West is so beautiful and there's so much, there is a lot of like federal land or land that's not sort of inhabited in the West. Like Phoenix has, or Arizona has a lot more uninhabited land than Michigan does. Right. Um, and I think we like to think about like that land being like left alone or like the Grand Canyon or Yellowstone is like a place that even though there's parts you drive to or walk through a lot of it's just sort of left doing what it is. But in climate change that will be less possible like climate change is global and affects things even where there are no people the temperature still goes up even where there you know there are no people there the weather changes um, and i find that really discouraging um, and i think some of that vision of the west was sort of like you know it begins in yellowstone in that time zone and um yellowstone's not going to be yellowstone even if no one ever goes there again like the the future of yellowstone is not the present um, even if no one ever visits again. And that's a, that's a weird thing to sort of know that you've seen something that might not be there in the same way. in in a hundred years, I think maybe we're more aware of that than we used to be. I like poignantly, like daily aware of that.
0: Well, I was going to say like radically different. Like that was some yeah. of the That was a sad, um, moment for me reading is like thinking about like, oh shit, like Yellowstone, like it's going to go right. like uh, all these things that I think we take for granted, these natural wonders can, there, there's a good possibility that they're going to be radically altered by advancing right. climate change. Yeah. And,
1: um, it's hard to think about and hard to, you really, you can't protect them just by like reducing the number of visitors or something like it has to be the systemic sort of change that is going to protect those places. Like caring about Yellowstone isn't just getting, keeping people from bothering the bison or something, right? Like that they need a bigger buffer than just us not driving by, um, um, uh,
0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. You know, I, I kept thinking the, the, the John storyline, the, the you know 70 years into mm-hmm. the future, or whatever it is, yeah. the one that you were saying was the more challenging one to write. Uh, I couldn't help but think of Edward Abbey. I don't know if – is he somebody that has been an inspiration to you? Uh, I feel like – I went on a kick with Ed Abbey not too long ago where I was reading a lot of interviews with him and watching old footage of him. But talk about an iconoclastic American Mm -hmm. writer and somebody who had like a really prophetic vision and like a rebel spirit. He was – I feel like he gets like – I think he's underrated I think is maybe where I landed after all that yeah i think that's probably true
1: i mean it's interesting being in arizona because he comes up a lot like sort of among the other people at the university that do sort of environmental stuff or that like his name's invoked a lot um i've read some but not a ton of his um uh although i've liked everything i've read um i think the the sort of maybe big famous sort of nature writers that were a big influence were uh annie dillard and wendell Berry, especially Berry. i think well dillard in and certainly in the way of writing nature um I think Wendell Berry was someone that I started reading because every environmentalist I read invoked Wendell Berry, and like every everywhere I went, it was sort of like he was coming up, and I was like, well, I obviously need to read Berry, just sort of like a touchstone for so many people, and people in like really different like spectrums. You read like a like a Nick Offerman book, and he's talking about Wendell Berry all the time, and then you read uh, like a Paul Kingsnorth. I mean, Offerman's obviously pretty lefty too, but like a, a Paul Kingsnorth, like radical like environmentalist thing. It's like Berry, 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 you know. Um, And I think uh, uh, there's a Wendell Berry book called The Unsettling of America that was um, really helpful and really it just felt right to me. It's a really angry book written, you know, 30, 40 years ago. It's incredibly angry. Everything in it seemed more or less correct. And it was like one of those people who can like see what's happening and no one's listening and they're just like very correctly yelling at you. Um and I think he formed a lot of like John's personality in certain ways, or you know, though John's a lot more lost than Barry is Barry's moral certitude is really high. Um but I think uh John thinks about him at one point in the book, or a line from his that is um a man with a machine and insufficient culture is a pestilence. He sort of remembers this thing from Barry. And I feel like that's so central to maybe to that story too. Like to have all this technology but not have the culture that lets you use it well is a really central, like Barry idea. Um and that seems uh, all over the book in certain ways. You know, like they, you come up with all these technological fixes for things. So these technologies that make our lives easier, but we don't have a way of integrating them well with the world or with other people. And so they become harmful instead of helpful.
0: Yeah, well, I, yeah. like the, I feel like things change so rapidly that there isn't enough time for the average consumer to even think about what the right. implications might be. You know, that's been the case for me. You know, I feel like I always do right. thing, these things retroactively once I'm, already addicted to the new technology (laughs) (laughs) i mean you look
1: at how many of us are like trying to figure out how to like live peaceably with our cell phones which is it's sort of a what an antagonistic relationship you know um i got off of uh twitter and facebook in 2016 like either during the election or right after it i was just sort of burned out and uh and took some time off them and uh And it changed the way the news read, because like the news would be about like Facebook and Trump and like how like these things were sort of used against us. And there would always be this little addict talk paragraph. They'd be like, oh, but what can you do? We've all got to be on Facebook, you know, like sort of like, well, no, we don't have to be, you know, that's a choice we're making. But it was really interesting to see. Like you had quit drinking. You can hear everybody telling you why they have to keep drinking, you know? And you're sort of like, you, you probably don't though.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, yeah. I mean, I could go on and on. My my listeners have heard me rant and rave about social media for for yeah. years now. But uh, I do think there is some, there is some element of the population for work-related reasons, and this could include writers yeah. who do feel like they've got to be on. You know, that's like part of their their work and part of the way that they build readership and all that all the rest requires engagement with these platforms and that's part of it that makes me bristle where it's like oh my god like you're locked in you have no choice you know and i don't like the idea of not having a choice to interact with a corporation you know
1: yeah i mean in some ways it's the way the the whole problem we're talking about operates right like you can sort of Um, I think there's a lot of stuff in the book about sort of complicity and, uh, in the ways that like we're in these systems that we didn't choose. It's not your fault that you were born into like a fossil fuel economy and you can sort of see that it's bad and it's also really hard to absent yourself from it. You know, like there's not like an obvious way to not be part of it. Um, only so many people can, uh, go live in a commune or something and that historically doesn't work out that well in the first place. You know, it's sort of the, the whole system has to change to give individuals an opportunity to adjust and so you get in these weird places where you really are trapped in a system that you don't want to be a part of sometimes um and there's other parts of course we all like of all these things um so it's it's complicated but uh it is really tricky when the the sort of cultural situation or the reality of your life doesn't allow you to make meaningful change um it's not as easy as uh like i know how fragile the water system in phoenix is and i still have to like shower and use the from the dishwasher and do you know like it's sort of like not interacting with it doesn't make it work you know um I, i've been yeah.
0: thinking lately i that this feels like something i should posit to you because you probably know more about this sort of stuff than i would or would have something in, interesting to say about it but i i have these hunches every once in a while and i don't even know entirely where they come from or how, how to define like the origin you know or, or even what they are um it's like this broad, kind of vague notion that the future is going to involve intentional communities, or I should say, I guess, more intentional communities because these things already do exist. But intentional communities that exist within urban environments, uh, existing pre-existing communities, but these intentional communities will have value systems. And will probably involve activism, possibly climate activism, or it seems to me, and also economic activism. I think that's maybe where it comes from mostly. Like people who band together and or fi- find creative new ways to live that might cut against neoliberal capitalism. You know, both as a method of political expression, but also potentially as a kind of necessity like an economic necessity yeah. taking into taking into account inequality taking into account advancing climate change like do you see what i'm imagining does I that... do i do
1: i think that it seems to me <clears throat>
0: excuse
1: me it seems like there's a version of that already in um like mutual aid community you know people like you can see that in the northwest this week with you know 115 temperatures in portland people are bandy together to give out water and to find pl- people places to keep cool and um to find people shelter and stuff like that. And I think um the phrase mutual aid is how I often hear it described, You see a lot of that being organized on social media. Like we need people to help here, we need people to do this. The the government response is slow or insufficient or purposely uh ineffective. Um and so you see regular citizens sort of trying to to Bridge those gaps and build some of those things. And it feels like that's the beginning of, of that kind of thing. There's, this problem can be solved by the community in a way that it can't be solved by um, buying something or by a corporation or by or, you know, or won't be solved by those entities. You know, there's um, I don't know. I think there's an acceptable amount of uh, not acceptable me, but acceptable amount of like loss or damage that most corporate or governmental programs as we have them now accepts. Like this much harm can be done to do this, and when you try to get rid of that harm, things get complicated um, but that seems to be the the future is gonna have to entail that you know the um one of the weird things about climate change is that you know the u s generated generated i don't know whatever their shares, but a huge portion of the the damage to the environment and will suffer less than countries that aren't nearly as developed you know the sort of if we don't see the task is shared if the goal isn't to save everyone it's just going to be rich people living in compounds and then sort of bands of uh less fortunate people doing the kind of things we're talking about kind of in like a parable to sower or something right you have these sort of like little walls communities of people trying to take care of each other in a collapsed economy or something um the saving everybody is tricky you know i mean that's the hard part but it feels like it should be the goal you know i think um one of the things that's really changed in my own thinking as writing this book is just Realizing that maybe I was uh, as, as cynical as I can be, I think maybe actually am or want to be a, a utopian thinker. Like, how do, how do we make this the best it can be for everybody? What's the least harm we can do? Um, something like uh, Ursula Le Guin's, like the ones who uh, ones you walk away from and It's like this society is perfect, except there's one person who has to suffer. And there's some people who just can't live in a society where that one person suffers for them. Lots of people suffer for us. And that seems like something we should find immoral. Um, and again, it's hard, it's easier to say it than to not participate in it. But I think finding ways to help each other and finding ways to make that better seems important and that's work we should be doing.
0: Yeah, no, no doubt. Well said. And I think there's a, there's like a Le Guin, I think it's a Leguin line about how utopia and dystopia are interrelated. Like every yeah. utopia contains a dystopia and vice versa. And you know, there's a cynical part of me that can sometimes look at what what's going on and look to the future I have two kids and I can just crumple. I can just be like, Oh my God, what are we handing them? What kind of fallen world are we handing to our kids and grandkids? Um, when I'm in like better, brighter moods, I might wonder if the pressures brought to bear upon humanity by climate change might bring out the best in a lot of people might strip away some of the illusions that have not been serving us. I mean, that's maybe the best you could hope for. It seems that's like the hope, right?
1: You know, yeah. That as, as the it becomes clear that the the scope of the problem, I, mean, I think even in the now that people have not known what was going on with climate change for a long time, but, you know, I started writing this book in, in 2016 and. Even in that time frame, you can see, like, the intensity of the news coverage going up, and you can see the sort of the climate sort of worry going up. And it just means more people are, are facing toward it as opposed to being like, I sort of know that's happening, but I don't want to think about it that much. Um, in my circles, at least, it feels like people are thinking about it a lot. Um, it doesn't mean we're that much closer to, to real action, but I think things seem possible that weren't possible five years ago, um, and that seems exciting um i think much is made of like how engaged sort of young people are i think my college students know way more about the climate crisis than like my parents do right you know like sort of you know many places than i do even when i've been thinking about it a long time they're really actively engaged in it because they have to be because they're going to live in the world a lot longer than we are um and that's both inspiring and also indicting right it's sort of like i mean i've been I'm 40 been voted in five presidential elections like this. The world that they're living in is the one I helped make, you know, like it's it's getting past the point where I can be like, oh, the baby boomers made this terrible world I have to live in. It's right. like and me, you know, um, I'm certainly done my part. And I think uh, I hope this sort of intensity around people like Greta Thunberg and people like that, like people reflect that that's not just an inspiring thing young people are doing for us, like their urgency should be ours. Um, because they're right. Like it is sort of the world we're giving them is a mess. Um, but it's silly to sort of pretend that's something that like seven-year-old people are doing to us, even
0: if they did. Um, but we're also we have done our share at this point. Yeah, I think everybody's got to take an active interest in it and a, accept a, a sense of personal responsibility. That, yeah, in the absence of that, uh, there's there's no hope. I mean, you know, right, I, right. I think the good news is people are. I think the the vast majority of people acknowledge that this is happening and it's very dangerous, and that's a big change. Yeah. That's a big shift in twenty years. I think of Wendell Berry's righteous anger. Uh, I think of Edward Abbey's. You know, yeah. there, there were there were there were people shouting into the uh, uh you know into the wind for a long time yeah. on this, and they were mocked and laughed at and ridiculed. Al Gore, um, yeah, you know, and they were right, and. Okay. Man, it pisses me off to think like how different the world would have been potentially had the Florida election in the year two thousand right you know the Brooks brothers revolt and all that the recount had the recount not been stopped you know uh what kind of world might we be living in now who's to say but it's it's deeply frustrating to look back and and not to pat myself on the back, but I'm sure you were in the same boat i I could see that i I was uh, not denying that climate change was happening. I mean, I'm, I'm no genius. I could figure it out. It just bothers me that there were all these, uh, you know, corporate entities and political operatives who were trying to quash it when Mm -hmm. the data was overwhelming, it was plain. And there were the earliest inklings of like on the ground evidence. And I don't know, it's a, it's one of those things where you, you can't burn up too much energy being pissed off about it because you'll lose sure. opportunities to be proactive and get something done. But it it's uh it's frustrating to look in the rearview mirror and see how moronic humanity, you know, a lot of humanity was in the face of all this information. Yeah, that's
1: probably fair. You know, I I think um, uh, I think Kim Stanley Robinson speaks really well a lot of times about like sort of political realities of climate change and of of capitalism um and uh and i think one of the things that i really appreciate when he says so he you just in a, a round table with ezra klein in the new york times and some other climate uh scientists and writers and he was talking about um that we'll have to solve the problems with the tools that are on the table you know like uh like the global political reality is like competing nation states and like that's not going to change in the next 20 years when we have to solve climate change. Right. Like you sort of like how how do we imagine, you know, we're probably not going to get rid of capitalism in America in the next 20 years. Like maybe maybe we'll change it, but it's not going to go away. So you have to find solutions sort of that exist on the table. And I think. I've been thinking about that a little bit recently because I, I do feel even in my book sort of pauses this, like, uh, let me reset everything and then I'll think about how we could get out of this. Right. You know, there's sort of a um, it's harder That's why the near future one's the hard one to write. Like it's the hardest place to think is right up where you are. What do we do in the next five years? What do we do in the next year? What do we do in the next six months? Those are like the really hard things. At the same time, I think the more climate writing i read the more like the solutions are the big solutions are sort of known right like we can't have a fossil fuel economy into the future like we've known that actually for 40 50 years right like that's sort of that's known um unlimited growth capitalism is not going to lead to a sustainable way of life for other people for other people or animals and so um some of these sort of what could we do to make things better is, is pretty known it's sort of will and it's and it's not letting our politics freeze us or pit us against the wrong people. You know, the sort of um, even being mad at like individual Trump voters, which I certainly feel is like still a kind of a symptom of being wrong at the mad at the wrong people. Like, you know, like spending my my daily rage on my neighbor's Trump flags is like not the best use of my my thinking, you know, Um, that the problem is happening at sort of a different level. And so I I think there is sort of hope is the sort of uh, communal sort of will to do something goes up. Um, I think um watching uh the possibility of Biden being a lot more radical than he was four years ago' is kind of wild you know it 's sort of like people have pushed, and the the some of those possibilities are there that weren 't there really recently um and it's just the ticking clock, right? It's sort of just like every minute matters. I mean, that's really, really what I felt in the Trump era. Trump era, as if it's over. During the Trump presidency, was that uh, I just felt the clock ticking. I just felt like every minute was a time. It wasn't even about the like the bad things he did to the environment. It was that we weren't doing good things. You know, sort of like I could just feel that four years slipped away that we needed, um, and that feels the thing to be avoided. The sort of incremental pace of progress is not up to the task of climate change
0: yeah i mean it's i mean the the phrase inflection point gets thrown around probably too much in political dialogue but it really is like this is it like the right there's not going to be any more chances to to mitigate i mean the way i understand it there's still going to be significant temperature level rise even if we did everything right from here on out but if we don't do a lot quickly then we're looking at what three degrees of temperature yeah. rise and th- all the disastrous implications that come out of that. It doesn't sound like much, but you read up on it and it's like, Oh my God, you know, like there's probably something about just like Americans not being on the cel- on
1: the Celsius temperature scale. That is like a huge problem. Like, you know, like you just can't like two degrees Celsius doesn't mean anything to you. You know, it's just like an impossible number to think about. Um, I think the other thing that's uh, maybe part of writing speculative fiction is, you know, the I can f- the farther goes on, the more the choices narrow. Like there were really good choices in the 70s when we discovered climate change was happening. You know, there are um, there are worse choices every year. Um, you know, the kind of geoengineering of the stratosphere that uh, the that Appleseed is partly about is a radical quick fix that will not actually solve any of the underlying problems. And I read 15 news stories about it this week because of the weather in Portland, you know, just like, oh, we're going to have to turn the temperature of the globe down. It's like, well, sure. But like that, you know, um, and that would have been unthinkable in the past and feels like it may become an inevitability. Um, Elizabeth Colbert wrote a, a really good book this year called Under a White Sky that's partly about that. It's the same sort of image that's in Appleseed. And a lot of the book is sort of, Um, we're, we're just getting past the point where we can stop the damage. So we're going to have to mitigate it. And what is like humans are going to dramatically modify the environment to mitigate their dramatic modifications of the environment. You know, like you get into this sort of, but as time gets shorter, that possibility probably goes up. Um, and I get, I feel very, uh, (laughs) I don't really want that to happen. And also, I can see the inevitability of of a dramatic thing happening because it, it, you know if you don't do the small things, you have to do the big thing.
0: So Elizabeth Colbert, under the White Sky, I'm, I, I haven't read it, but I read about it. Uh, I don't want to say I read some interviews with her. Uh, she wrote the Sixth Extinction. I mean, she's been yeah. she won like a Pulitzer or something for her work on climate. She's the yeah. New Yorker uh, climate change beat reporter essentially. And um, under the White Sky is talking about geoengineering. Just so I'm clear on this there's going to be a geoengineering project probably in the future if things don't dramatically shift that would cloud the sky basically and yeah i think the you know the version of it that's in
1: Appleseed is um uh a little more speculative and fantastical but i think some way of putting reflective particles in the stratosphere that would reflect some sunlight back um something similar to what happens when a huge volcano goes off and we have um the, uh, the volcano that um, famously went off in Europe around the time um, that she- Mary Shelley's writing Frankenstein, right? They have a summer, a uh, year with no summer where the sky is blotted out and crops are dying because so it's too cold. Um, but some way of like lowering the temperature, um, it requires, you have to sustain it. So you have to keep doing it is the thing, right? So you could do it right now with like, you would drop aerosols out of jets, right and you could like lower the temperature locally but you would have to fly like thousands of jets all the time putting so you can sort of see like the problem to fossil fuels can't be flying jets in the air all the time putting things in the air to lower temperature and the carbon dioxide is still going up right you're just mitigating it so you don't solve any of the underlying problems and a lot of the like big technological solutions are like we'll do this and then we won't have to change how we live and like that's you know, um, that's the trick. Uh, I think I got really suspicious of the word sustainable while I was writing this book. Because Sustainable often means like we we'll just get to keep doing what we're doing um, as opposed to uh, actually making things better. Um, and the other thing I think along those lines is uh, when you read about um, water conservation in the West, there's this uh, this thing that happens somewhere like Phoenix. I'm sure this happens in L.A. or did happen in L.A. before it was maybe maxed out um you make a there's this much water right and so you get everybody to put in gravel in their yard instead of grass and you make the showers more efficient the toilets more efficient and the dishwashers more efficient and then instead of leaving that water in the ground you build another neighborhood and so you you're actually as think as appliances get more efficient we use more energy we just plug in more stuff Or as water gets more efficient, we just let more people live in the place where there's no water. And so we we, – so like efficiency, we have to make things that are more efficient, right? But they don't automatically become lessening of the overall effect. Um, So having uh, a greener house is great as an individual choice as long as your city doesn't build another subdivision next to you. And I think the sort of history of that is like, that's what happens, you know, the stuff, you never leave the water in the ground, you never leave the oil in the ground, you never leave the, you know, um, it just becomes a chance for growth, which is the, the sort of capitalistic, you know, if, if to leave a resource, not maximally used is a failure in capitalism, um, but we're going to have to leave some stuff unused, um, that's another thing that living in the Phoenix in Phoenix is good for, because everybody sees the desert as barren, right? This idea that like nothing is in the desert. When the desert is, of course, like a vibrant ecosystem full of animals and and has an effect in. Um, but there's definitely uh, from an outside point of view, this idea that like that's unused land. You know, land is not being productive in a certain way, so you just bulldoze it and build houses.
0: Well, I think that's you know you're getting right to the core of it. In my mind, which is the tension between like the ethos the the capitalistic ethos of unlimited growth, growth all the time. Right. growth is always good, yep. we need growth. If you're not growing by ten percent annually, your company is failing, yeah. um, versus the finite amount of resources that we have on the planet and the damage that the pursuit of unchecked growth has on the environment like there is a tension between these two things that has got to it's got to be resolved and right. soon one way or the other yeah. like it's either going to go all you know we're going to go all in on self-destruction or we're going to make fundamental changes to capitalism and I think it it would require us to engage with the difficult questions about how we live now that you were alluding to earlier. You know, like these technos, technological super solutions that, you know, people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, like that, that kind of person, you know, are likely to agitate for, um, doesn't require us to like stop and like look inward <laughs> at, right. at how we are relating to the planet and each other and whether or not like... Whether or not capitalism is even the best way of doing things, which mm-hmm. is like an you know that kind of question is anathema in America, where we've sort of like been fed this idea that it's the it's the solution forever and ever. You know, and I'm right. I'm at the point. I'm past the point where I've uh, I've been questioning that. You know, I I can't help but look around Los Angeles and the world in general and not wonder if there are saner ways to to live.
1: Yeah, and it's 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 so I mean it's again that sort of thing of of knowing complicity and also not being able to get around it. And and all these things do tend to make your life materially better, at least in the short term. Um you know I have a, a writer friend who's uh, fantastic speculative fiction writer and is involved in local, the local like Democratic Socialist Party and like really just knows all that all that stuff and is really anti-capitalist and uh, and hasn't sold the first book yet and is sort of having a conversation with him and talking about his novel and he's like, well, how do you know like we're talking about all the like socialist politics of his novel and it's like, well, how do I get like the biggest book advance <laughs> right? because because you, you've you got to live you right you right. want to write books and you want right. to like you shouldn't have to live in a hole because you're a socialist right like it's like you sort of you should get it should work so it's always that tension between like what you know and then the systems that are that you interact with and um and it's tricky because obviously the answer to not capitalism is not being paid for your work right like that's not the the thing but it is a these weird sort of tensions where it's really really hard not to function capitalistically in because that's the society around us and there aren't really other options for like paying your bills um but uh, but you can decide how much you need and how much you want. Um, but I still think there's I mean, the case already is like, I mean, all this stuff is related, right? Income, income inequality is part of this. Um, you and I could make our lives as small as we wanted. And Jeff Bezos would still just like make another three hundred billion dollars this year. You know, like no matter how small you make your life, it won't stop him from making his bigger. So, like, the solution isn't that we all have to, like, live in caves so that we can stop capitalistic growth, but, like, maybe the people at the top don't need to own everything and have everything and leave us sort of unable to survive if we don't play along. Um, So there's some rebalancing of the economy that allows us to to start some of that process as well. Um, I think, uh, you know, the most offensive stuff when you're reading climate stuff is all the, like, bunkers that... Um, all the rich people are putting in their houses and stuff, while you know, like they're gonna have these like climate treats. I think Bill Gates is one of the biggest landowners in America. Like that dude's fine. He's gonna be fine. It doesn't matter what happens. His kids are gonna be fine. His friends are gonna be fine. We're not his friends. We're not gonna be fine. You know. Um, and I think uh, at some point we have to figure out a way to not let a very small percentage of people who will get to continue to thrive even as things get very bad that that's uh, repugnant and should be repugnant to everybody. And somehow we should band together to keep them from doing it to us. Um, there's a little bit of an apple I think of like uh, if the rich are going to thrive at the expense of everybody, then I'd rather be nobody. You know, I think there is a like better. We all go down than that. You get to live in your tower and be fine while we suffer. Um, that may be the case as well. Uh, but I think it's probably more likely that some people will be totally fine. For a long time, and you know, other people are going to be in awful situations. It's already the case. Um, it's going to be more so.
0: I think you're going to have. I mean, I think it's already starting, but you're going to have runs right. on land in places where the climate models say, uh, you know, are they likely to fare better? You know, so yeah, the Great Lake states, Upper Michigan. You know, yeah. I feel like Traverse City is a hot real estate market right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, people yeah. are going to say, "Hey, I can live up there in the summer." or mm-hmm. you're going to have rich people who I, like i i you know what was i joking I, or what was i saying uh i was saying that they were going to have bipolar existences <laughs> right so you know you spend the the you know one half of the year in the northern hemisphere and one half of the year in the southern hemisphere you're going to have people buying up all the good real estate and sharing it with their families and friends or businesses or whatever and then you're going to have um, you know the other half of the year they fly south and they get to go live in patagonia or whatever it 's uh it 's a really minor part of apple it maybe
1: takes is like three paragraphs of the book, but it was really important to me that there 'd be this like sort of spaceport that 's being built and that there you know there 's a uh, backup plan if you can 't solve the uh climate crisis. of course to live in space which is you know um vissa's going to check out his new property this week right um or this month um I think uh, it was important to have it in there partly because I think it's realistic and uh, there's a part where people are like continually trying to bomb the spaceport. And I was just like, I just feel like that like rage against like rich people's escape plan from reality is real and should be real. And like, um, it'd be, I mean, I don't know. Like, it's, it will be insane making the part where they get on their ark and go to like another planet in 100 years and we're just like all left here, which is, of course, a pretty common scientific tro- sci fi trope. But like, I think that, you know, that's definitely the goal, you know, of like Mars colonization. is not like half of us will move to Mars and we'll just space out and then there'll be enough room on Earth for everybody. It's like 500 of us will go to Mars and it will be great. Um, So, I don't know. I mean, that stuff seems so fanciful, but the real-life version of it is the thing where Bill Gates owns a Montana and lives there by himself. Um, He's not even married anymore. He'll just live there by himself. I mean, like, he'll have all of Montana. That's offensive. Um,
0: You know? I think it's okay to feel rage toward that. Um, Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I was going to say, like, you know, they're talking about people trying to bomb the spaceport uh, as, like, the rich attempt to flee reality, but I think maybe a more likely nearer term, uh, you know, prospect would be the walled gated communities and then Mm -hmm. everybody else on the outside. I could easily, I I often say this, you know, to, um, to people is like, who is that a future you want? Like, even if you're rich enough to afford to live inside the gated community, like if everybody on the outside of the gate is starving and miserable and angry, you're not gonna be happy either. And they're gonna right. come, at some point, they're gonna come for you. <laughs> you know, Like, that's what I could imagine. It's like people saying, hey, uh, we want in, or we're just pissed off and dying out here, and we're gonna come, uh, you know, trample your neighborhood to let you know that you can't ignore us. Yeah. There's a, a
1: Margaret Atwood story. I think it's called, it's called Torch the Dusties. Which is like young people come for the old people, and they're like, uh, like com- commune or community, old community where they're sort of living in this walled garden, and everything's good, and the younger generation, the outside, are suffering, and they like come for the old people. It's sort of the end, is sort of a, a similar generational thing. Um, you know, I, th- I mean, the other. Uh, thing about this is like our walled community is is like the nation state right the sort of the u.s border is one of those things as well and um climate refugees are are going to go up, not down i mean i think that's that's a permanent feature of the i don't know geopolitics for the foreseeable future and um and you know i think that's that's some of it's easy when trump is in 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 power to talk about the way he deals with the border and then you you see, there's not there's not an easy solution when someone else is in power and our um, our unease with our complicity in what happens at like the southern border right now, no matter where you're on their political spectrum, is part of that anxiety that, you know, you're in the you're in the walled garden. You know, you're in the part where right now it's safe and other people are not. Um, and. uh and no one's solution is like let everyone in you're not no one's solution, but mostly the solution. the solution that's likely to happen is not let everyone in and share what's left um and that's i there's a, a moral failing there that I think is felt even as an anxiety if you- you know people that wouldn 't name it would still be feeling it, and sort of it's a reluctance to talk about it is partly that um but yeah, I think that metaphor is, is wide ranging, you know, that you can make the unit of the walled garden different sizes, but like it absolutely exists. And most of us are, are inside one or another, you know?
0: Yeah. I have debates with people around things like immigration and uh, policing in, in like yeah. recent, in recent times, like law enforcement in society. And, you know, these things have been called into question. Uh, you talk about the Southern border, I've had debates with friends of mine where they're like, you know, there should be no borders. Right. And I'm like, really? Like, okay, that's like a radical idea and kind of utopian. And I like it on that level. But I'm like, I don't know if it's practical in the world as presently constituted. Like if you just completely opened everything up, what would the result be? I cannot imagine that it would not involve a lot of like negative consequences, chaos and social dis- disorder. And um, I don't know, I think it could be a messy thing. I'm not 100% sure, but it, I can easily imagine how it could be. Likewise, there are people who are like, abolish the police. And I'm like, okay, I know there's a lot of problems with the police. Uh, I think you know that's been proven over and over again, definitely needs change. But to get rid of it completely, like, does that mean there's no law enforcement? is there any civil society on earth that is able to function without any law enforcement mechanism like maybe there is and i'm missing it but i i don't think so you know like i don't know i i these are the games that i play with you know with myself kind of thinking about it in in my head like there's going to have to be change and new thinking around these sorts of um issues and ideas but i don't know if uh if like the extreme solutions are necessarily always practical uh, at least for now i
1: think um i was saying like neither of those two things are 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 my area of expertise and i i know there are people thinking really hard about about these i think one part of it is like in society as cur- currently constituted i can't see how that would work right and so like that's part of it right like there it it wouldn't so it's like other things change as well or it have to. And I think this is one of the things that fiction is useful for. You know, I don't think fiction has to be utilitarian, but um, a utility it does have is the ability to sort of imagine other ways of being and imagine otherwise, as, as Daniel Heath Justice says. Um, and I, you know, there's sort of uh, uh, subgenres of, of, of speculative fiction like solar punk and hope punk and things like that and trying to like instead of writing a dystopia trying to like write people already living in a future in which like climate change was mitigated or here's how people will live well in in 50 years or how things might change to do that. Um, And I think those things are important. I think if we can't imagine living in a world without the police, then we won't get to one. Right. But you could, you could obviously, you could write a novel where you worked it out. Those problems you talk about like, well, how will communities police themselves? It's like, well, there'll have to be some other mechanism because you're right. It won't just be everybody takes everybody's stuff and kills each other in the streets, (laughs) um, which is not what most of us are doing anyway. So like the police aren't stopping me from killing my neighbors. I'm just not going to kill them. You know, like so like it's sort of it's. But anyway, someone could you could think through those problems and imagine solutions to them and try them out in fiction, which is a nice scenario planning tool. Um, And I think uh, so there is sort of a use for for writers to imagine into these thorny complicated things um you know i I, uh, I can't talk maybe a lot about what i'm working on yet uh without taking up like an enormous amount of time but i think one of the things i'm trying to do in the work i'm doing is, now is is to think about that like there's no way to like move the things that we take for granted in our society into one i've made up if i've made up a speculative society it can be function different and so why not, you know, there's going to be some problem in the book, but other parts of it can change productively. If the book isn't about policing, for instance, why not imagine a better kind of policing than what we have and just have that implemented in the book? Um, you know, I think it's interesting to sort of do things that aren't the focus of the book that are good speculative work. Um, you read science fiction novels from the last 40 years. Most of them are living in, fe- in fe- where humans exist in a thousand years They've solved climate change because otherwise humans wouldn't exist. You know, they're sort of uh, I just read a CJ Cherry book um, and they're, you know, they're living on another planet and they're like, well, oh, we can't do like fossil fuels like we did on Earth because like if we do that, you know, like sort of. So there has to be another solution. All of Le Guin's books from the 70s have people who are using like solar cars on another planet because what kind of idiot would burn all the coal on this planet? You know, <laughs> and it's sort of like you sort of it's always like there is some way of just like that's not the focus of the book, but people wouldn't exist in this highly advanced spacefaring society if they were also burning every inch of oil they could find, you know, um, so it's sort of an interesting task of that kind of writing is like you can solve some problems even if they're not the focus of the book. Like, you know, the the book doesn't have to be like, look how dire this thing is. It can also say, like, well, let's solve some of these other things and we'll tell a story in this society. Like, what would it look like to be, what a detective novel set in a future with no police look like or something, right? You know, like, there's ways to, like, do interesting things. Um, I don't know. I feel like that's one of the fun parts of writing these kind of books is, like, trying to solve the unsolvable problem, you know. And again, often it's real simple, right? Like, if you don't build a... Uh, An economy based on uh, long haul trucking and cheap gas, (laughs) you solve a couple of problems right away. Right. You know, right.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, your answer, you're talking really eloquently about a question that I was going to pose to you, which is why, if things like climate change and climate science are of such paramount importance to you, uh, why turn to fiction versus nonfiction? And you just explained a lot of why. I think another aspect to it uh, would be. That when it comes to uh, issues like these that have a lot of heat and tension and emotion around them, writing about them, fic- you know, in fiction, can give people a way in. It, like gives the yeah. the kind of breathing room that you might not get in a work of nonfiction, where you know someone's trying to advance a particular agenda or make a case, um, and, or as you say, they they might. Uh, I don't know, it's kind of like a spoonful of sugar. It might be easier to imagine a world without police if it's in a futuristic detective novel than if it's written by somebody who's like on the front lines as an activist or a politician right. who's agitating right now to make those kinds of changes.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. That's sort of the the defamiliarization part of fiction that gets talked about so much is is really useful. Your guard just goes down because you're encountering this other way. Um I you know, I think we've had like a really like uh, a serious conversation about serious things and um at the same time I you know I think uh part of the reason to write it in fiction is because um fiction is is fun to write and it's entertaining and it's a, you know it's playful in ways I think it's i i as serious as this book is I think it's also like maybe my most fun book. Like, I mean, I think it's playful and accessible in a different way and, and, and about wonder in, in a certain way that really matters to me. And, and there is, I think, a lot of, like, beauty in the book and sort of trying to, like, depict those things even in these spaces It feels really important to me. Um, but, it, you know, like, there's, uh, like, a car chase early in the book, right? I'd never in a car chase scene before. It was fun to write a car chase scene. Like, some of the, like, getting me to think about this stuff one of the ways to do is to do it in the story because then I, you know, like as you're solving all these problems of storytelling or you're having fun making a certain kind of scene, um, you, you stay in the chair and keep working on these problems in your brain. Um, and I think, I mean, I felt as I was writing the book, not, calmer is not the right word because I obviously don't feel like calm about climate change, but I felt less anxious because I was spending time with it and thinking about it. Um, you know, like when you're sick and you don't go to the doctor and you're just so like, am I dying? And then you go to the doctor and you're like, well, I'm sick, but now I know what it is. Uh, like this sort of like staying with it was good. Um, and I think fiction is one of the ways for me that I can make myself stay with it. I mean, I did read a lot of climate science, but um, figuring out the intricacies of the plot was also a way of just like sitting with the ideas until I figured out what I thought about them as opposed to just what I'd read about them. Uh, so I think, you know, the the writing and reading of fiction is useful in that way um also i mean i don't know about you but there's so many things i care about politically that i first encountered in fiction like I, I there are a lot of ways in which or or fiction prepared me to hear about it in the news in a certain way um my wife and i watch jeopardy like every day and uh she's always like why do you know that i'm like oh, i've read a novel i know this little bit about that i know this little thing and these little and then when i read the news i'm like oh, i know a little bit about that historical period i read that book or something and these like it it has been a way of like preparing me to hear the news in a certain way that's uh maybe underestimated uh when you read widely you just get exposed to a lot of different perspectives and a lot of different ideas that like prepare you to think instead of just accepting or rejecting like what people are already telling you there is sort of like a framework that it gives you um but yeah for me a lot of it is like so much of the stuff was fun to do or fun to think about or do these sort of mythological retellings in the book was like it was an enjoyable way to spend my days and it kept me thinking about the big issues that I was interested in as going, of course, discovered a lot of them trying to solve plot holes too, right? Like the political future of the book is a plot problem that ended up me thinking really hard about like Naomi Klein's shock doctrine and things like that and disaster capitalism. And like, I learned about that incidentally and then dug into it because it was solving a world building problem I had. And then I came out knowing like a lot about, disaster capitalism that i might not have ever really understood what was if i
0: hadn't built one um that's useful so and when you say built one you're talking of earth trust yeah yeah absolutely and like and for people listening who might not have read uh the shock doctrine or who might not be familiar with the term disaster capitalism this is um you know a theory a theory on capitalism that when there's a big natural disaster or some other kind of disaster there are forces within capitalism who seek to profit off of that disaster so just as an example like after hurricane katrina you might have land developers come in and buy up all of the ninth ward on the cheap and then build uh, condos on it or whatever it is you know like uh, find a way to make money off of um catastrophe essentially <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think, you know, like a classic example is Halliburton after the gu- the war in Iraq, right? You sort of, you, you cause a disaster, then you profit off it, you know, and I'm really, um, yeah. Uh, and, you know, and I think, you know, one of the things that's really important to me in in Appleseed is that uh, Yuri Mirov, who runs Earth Trust in the book, is is like the antagonist, but not a villain, right? If that makes sense, right? Like, I don't, I like, her goals are... Her girls, we're going to hear people with her goals all the time on the news in the next, you know, decades of people who want to do these big technocratic, techno utopian solutions to climate change that don't require other kinds of systemic change. And she uses this shock doctrine, disaster capitalism sort of moves to do kind of a benevolent, benevolent and air quotes, takeover of like half of the country that allows her to sort of control the food system and then unilaterally sort of this geoengineering plot. Um But she doesn't believe democracy is up to the task. That it's it's her sort of gaining enough power to to do this thing that needs to be done. Um, But it was interesting to think through that. It seemed like though I don't think there are any examples of disaster capitalism being used well in the in the actual world, you know. But like if you were trying to free climate change solutions to climate change from ineffective government, maybe this is one of the ways you could do it. Is sort of the thought problem with that her actions in the book. Um, And it was interesting to think through that, you know, the sort of watching a 50-50 Senate take all of the climate change out of the infrastructure plan while the infrastructure melts down all over the country does not make you feel like, oh, democracy will work this out on its own, you know. Um, And so it was interesting to think about those other solutions, even if I don't really want those either. Like it was still like to have the contrast in my brain and to say like, you know, if not this, then that maybe you know, or at least that's one possible way.
0: It's a really interesting question that I think is very much of the moment is whether or not, and Biden talks a lot about this, is whether or not democracy is up to the task and can yeah. it move quickly enough to address the problems when the clock yeah. is ticking? Uh, that's That seems like it's has yet to be answered, you know, like we're in the process of Greed. getting the answer, but we really... I don't know. It's an uncomfortable question to to entertain in some ways because what's the alternative if the answer is no? Right. Is I mean, it... that's the, right. That's, <laughs> I don't know. that's, yeah. that's what you're asking yeah. in the book.
1: I mean, that's, yeah. that's what Yuri's all about, you know? And, and, you know, in some ways the real life shows some hope, right? Like, uh, like the, the green new deal was a, was an aspirational, like these are the best case things and we'll, maybe we'll get some of these when like AOC was elected for the first time and then it was essentially the platform of the Democratic Party in the next presidential election that's that's incredible change you know something that was absolutely impossible a couple of years before um, you see other things like i don't i don't know i won't get like the statistic right but the number of Americans who said they were like allied with black lives matters, you know, four years ago when we first started hearing that term was really low. And then last year was like 80% of Democrats, right? Like, so you, they, these things can move really rapidly, um, but they have to move really rapidly. So it's sort of like, it's a complicated thing. You need like, a, you need public, um, sentiment to shift really quickly. And then you need the people in power to follow it. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's possible. I don't, you know, I'm not, uh, certainly not like counting out democracy's chances, but like they require a lot of things to go well by a lot of people quickly.
0: Well, um, on the on yeah. the optimistic side of the ledger, and it's a grim form of optimism, but <laughs> if more and more people experience 120-degree summer days, and if more and more people are breathing soot from wildfires for three months every year, public sentiment is going to change and like th- that is like in a weird grim way it's something that g- gives me hope cuz you know people aren't going to believe scientists you know too many people are not going to believe scientists uh, on the news trying to talk sense to people um right. more and more in our country and in the world people seem to have uh their own reality or believe they have their own reality but when you're baking at 120 degrees uh, in June, there's no, you can't, you can't talk that away. (laughs) No. And, uh, maybe that'll, you know, maybe that'll have an impact and people across the political spectrum will see the wisdom in making these changes quickly. I, I hope so. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's unfortunate
1: how many things you have to wait till they're like on your door before you're, you'll do anything about them. Um, but it's on our door so let's do it you know right (laughs) it's it's, yeah i mean it's impossible not to see or understand at this point you know
0: so i want to ask you i want to shift gears a little bit and talk yeah let's do it some more about like aesthetic concerns um Mm. in this book and just in general for you as a writer working um with i think a Like working within a framework like all of your work like any writer their work you know when you consider the entire body of it is is of a piece one way or another but um writing about the natural world was something that you talked a a bit about earlier and you mentioned annie dillard and you mentioned wendell berry for people who are listening who might be working writers or aspiring writers can you talk a little bit about what you've learned about how to write nature
1: yeah i think thank you that's a great question um I think one of the the things that was really instructive for me was moving to to Arizona from from Michigan. You know, I, I lived in Michigan till I was thirty three or thirty four. I'd been there my whole life, uh, mostly in the same place. Um, and then I moved out to Arizona, and so the landscape is so different, right? The animals are different, the the seasons are different, the weather is different, the plants are different. Um, and so one of the ways we made ourselves home made this home was like to to spend a lot of time out in the out in the uh, trails not in the national forest and in the desert. Um, and uh, my wife is a, a birder and uh, she took a master naturalist course here and and you know has learned so much about sort of the the local, flora and fauna um and one of the things you do with that is you you know when you first move to a new place it's like the desert and that's what you see you just see the desert and you don't see the parts of it you don't see the things maybe you learn a couple plants really fast you learn like the saguaro right and you see your first chuck wall and you're like oh there's these big lizards a rattlesnake you already know the rattlesnakes will be there scorpions in your house that kind of stuff um and as you spend more time and you learn more you learn like the next layer of the sort of the wild place you know it's sort of like here's this animal there's a i only see them if you run before dawn in the desert there's a banner tailed kangaroo rats they like vanish at first light like they're only nocturnal right you see those you're like i didn't even know these were here i spent all this time here and i didn't know these were here um you learn the names of the the other plants the catclaw mimosa and the, you know these sort of things that you didn't know were there and every time you learn a new thing, you see another layer of it and it just sort of keeps opening up um and it becomes fuller and it becomes more alive and uh and you also see if you go to the same places the way it changes over the year um and all that's to say i think trying to make some version of that in in the nature writing in the book like trying to be concrete try to name things what they are or try to let let uh especially in the chapman parts of the book let him like inhabit a place and sort of be with it and sort of um to let that complexity sort of come out um you know, I think uh, one of the things most of us don't do on a daily basis anymore, other than maybe like our pets, is like touch another like living thing outside of our home. Like, you know, like you're not getting dirty every day, right? You're not in the dirt. You're not touching, you know, all the plants in the desert are dangerous, so you don't touch them. You know, <laughs> sort of like the your contact is low. And like trying to like, like knowing things and, and seeing them and paying attention to them is like one way you make contact with them. And I think that trying to depict things as they are matters and then also trying to make them sort of wondrous you know we've talked a lot today about like what it would take to like save the world but i think like if you don't feel affection for it or don't feel wonder toward the non-human world then then you won't want to save it um and i think that trying to get that on the page trying to show that these things um have sort of inherent value outside of their interest to humans and are, are sort of wondrous and and beautiful and interesting seems really important to me and in every stage of the book even in in time in the far far future um when he's with his his tree and he's caring for it it's like he only has one thing in the world to wonder at and so that wonder is really total you know um and uh and that felt really important to me like a lot of his plot is just caring for like one the one living thing there is um and if that's all you have you should take good care of it um, and so really, try, I guess that's sort of my approach to nature writing here, which is to, to try to be close, try to be attentive, try to name things um, and try to let them exist on the page, even even beyond their like plot function or they're they're not there as like an objective correlative for like Chapman's emotions or something. Right. Like they exist independently of the human actors in the scenes.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm just like I'm flashing to like uh, like my favorite example of this or one of my favorite examples of this is the work of Terrence Malick. Like all of his yeah. cu- all of his cutaways to nature in his movies um, do that very well. Like the animals yep. will just be like looking at the camera, and it's the middle right. of like a you know. I'm thinking of like the Thin Red Line, where like you know human uh-huh. beings are like blowing each other up, and then he'll just cut away to like some animal I've never heard of before. You know, it's some uh, it was in the Pacific Theater, so I don't know some island animal, and it's just looking at right. the camera quizzically, like what the hell's going on? <laughs> what was that noise? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's sort of wonderful. You know, I, um, I think one
1: of the the things I've taken the most from like trail running is just, you know, going to the same places over and over. Um, especially during the pandemic where I just roamed a little less, you know, I sort of, I ran the deserted trails within, you know, 40 minutes of my house or something. Um, and I got to know where like the, like the, animals were going to be you know like this is the place where you see the coyotes this is the only place you'll see a javelina in this park this is a place where uh, i don't know if you know harris hawks they're like the only raptors that hunt in packs they have like little family units and one will like sit on a saguaro and the other ones will hunt on the ground they have this sort of like um but there's a family of them near my house and like i i know where they're going to be and i see them um and one of the things you, I think you you learn or I learned from having a, maybe a birder as a, a partner is um, a lot of the animal noises you hear animals like warning other animals that a human is there. Right. Like, you know, it's like, oh, that bird song. Like, but like every noise you hear is a bird being like, watch out. There's that big, dumb animal. Um, <laughs> and the Harris Hawks do that. They're sort of like there's like. They make this noise that I think is like a warning. It's sort of like, oh, that guy's lumbering through here again, you know. Um, but if you stop and you sit still, they stop making those noises, right? Like animals will sort of like go back to being themselves. Like you're not interrupting them. And if you never spend any time in that sort of like pause state, the the world's always reacting to you as opposed to being itself. Um, it seems really great to sort of stop and, and look at what it is as opposed to disturb it, you know.
0: Um, well I think I, I relate to you a lot uh because I think we're wired the same way like you're a person who yeah. needs motion uh there's just some of us who have to have this like you've got Yeah to, yeah. you've got to run I've got to hike uh but both of us are out in nature I think that's a very uh specific decision it's I could I could go for a walk around the city you could go for a run in your neighborhood in like right. a more suburban uh, in which I do but it's like you know not the same right no, not like, the that, same
1: that's exercising that's like a different it's a different function yeah
0: well i i you know i i sometimes hear people say like why well, like i don't like hiking and i'm right. like you don't like to walk in nature like <laughs> like what's not to like you don't have to go up a right. hill i mean you could be on a flat surface in the woods it's not like you have to climb a mountain but uh, yeah. i really believe that there is something like medicinal, I don't want to get too precious about it, but like it, without any contact, especially some as somebody who lives in this big, huge city, yeah. without any regular contact with the natural world, I think you really lose a lot. And it doesn't even like look. I'm in Griffith Park, or uh, you know, right. up in the uh, Hollywood Hills. It's not like I'm, it's not like I'm out in, in quote unquote nature in the way that I think most people would imagine it. But I, I see coyotes. And every time I do, it's a thrill. Uh, Occasionally, I'll see a hawk. And Mm -hmm. you you might know more about this because, uh, as you say, your wife's a birder. But uh, sometimes, like, I've seen hawks, they'll land low to the ground on, Mm -hmm. like, a stump. Or, you know, yeah, it's a stump that I saw, the one that's coming to mind. And I was walking past it. It was just sitting there. And it was totally chill. And I was like, wow, I thought like, you know, usually you're thinking of hawks either circling in the sky or up on a high tree branch or something. But it landed low and I just had this moment with it where I was just like staring at it and it was staring at me and it didn't seem the least bit unnerved. I guess it was probably like, I can fly Mm -hmm. away if this asshole comes at me. (laughs) But I don't know. Yeah, I think
1: it's, it's, uh, it's nice to have those points of contact and also like, that you're not as interesting as you think you are to it, right? Like, it's not – you're not moving the world all the time. It's good.
0: Yeah. I don't know. I get a lot from it, and I, I love the pictures of uh, the desert, you know, you going on these great trail runs, like the you know the photos that you take, uh, especially when you're at, like, Vista points, you know, they're pretty spectacular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, damn, that looks good. I'd love to go, you know, wherever he is. And, right. Uh, I also have a sense, and correct me if I'm wrong, that – you're a disciplined human being you would have to be if you're getting up at four in the morning to go trail running and you're also productive you're publishing books pretty regularly you've written um a big book you know that essentially weaves together three novels into one um you know that all of that is a heavy lift and you're teaching you know you've got a lot going on and you're you're managing to handle it all so am I barking up the right tree like are you type a like do you have like a very orderly system uh to your I life I do think I'm I, I you
1: know I mean I I absolutely am a time waster and have my lazinesses and and I think it's good I think actually one of the things that's been maybe recentering the last couple of years was like trying not to think of what I'm doing in terms of like productivity right like it's like I'm not a factory it's okay like just you know like do what I want to do um a lot of writing gets done partly because I like to write like a day I write is better than a day. I don't write, you know, like I like doing it. So it, I think like that helps a lot. Um, I do think routine, um, helps with all that for me. Like I, I do tend to write about the same time of the day. I do have trouble writing if I don't get to do it then. Right. It's hard for me to do it. You know, I write in the mornings. Um, I exercise as soon as I get up here, but that's because it's hot out. Like I, I mean, i you know, I'm actually lazier about it in the winter when I don't have to, like here, it's like, man, you get out of bed at 4 or 4.15 or you
0: don't get to go outside today. You know? <laughs> okay, wait. No, so stop, I want to stop you there. Like, so you're getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning just to be able to go outside. What What's the temperature at 4 o'clock in the
1: morning? It's always like 30 degrees less than it is during the day. So when it's 115, it's 85 at at four fifteen in the morning. Um, it doesn't cool off like until the morning. So it's sort of like you can't run. Like the sun, like when students move here who are runners, they're always like, I'll run in the evenings. And I'm like, you won't because it's still 120 degrees out when the sun goes down. Right. It cools off overnight. Um, and so uh, it's still pretty hot but partly it's just like not having the sun on you. Like you know the the that hour that you can run before the sun comes up is a lot more pleasant than once it's up in a cloudless sky and just beating on you. Um there's uh there a couple of years ago I was running uh like some 50k ultra marathons which is when I was just training a lot and I would do these like 20 mile runs in like August. Um and I would get up at like 345 and drive out to the desert and go running. And it was still so – the ground was so hot from the night before that it was radiating heat. Like I would be climbing – incline the trail. And it was like uh, – you know in Star Wars and Empire Strike Back, that device they put Han Solo on and like burn his face? Like the trail was like that. Like you could feel it like easy bake ovening you as you were climbing. I mean it's wild. It's a wild environment. I mean it's it's very intense. Um but yeah, I think generally to go back to your other question, I think uh, ru- routine enables that for me. I, I I think when I was young, I thought being a writer was being like, a I don't know, like a Henry Miller or Jack Kerouac. I was going to live this like wild life and write about it or something. Um, but I think deep normality is actually like the thing that enables me to like think and be weird, you know, sort of like you keep these, this stuff steady and then you you do that. Um, how was, you know, my, my, uh, wife's a very serious and intentful person and, um, has always had some kind of like nine to five ish kind of job. So, you know, like there's sort of a routine baked into our days that is minor, more amorphous, you know, so it's sort of good to like, this is the time I cook dinner stuff is built into just being a person with her. Um, but yeah, I, I think, uh, I, I really thrive on that in a certain way that said, I don't know if you felt this during the pandemic. The thing I missed the most maybe was spontaneity. You know, like just a friend being like, do you want to go get a beer or something? Like, I mean, I didn't have an interaction with another human that wasn't planned for like a month for a year and a half. And I was like, even going to like the grocery store or something was like you planned it for two days and then you went out. You know, I just like I deeply hated like the down to like that kind of planning. So somewhere in the middle. But yeah,
0: I don't know. I think served by routine. I think, yeah, I mean. Deep normality and. (laughs) <laughs> I can, you, you made a verb of this. So I'm going to repeat it. Easy bake ovening yourself <laughs> during exercise. Like that's been my experience too. You need a ritual. You need kind of predictability. I can maybe sometimes take it too far. Mm-hmm. Like I can easily fall into a, like a routine. I'm, I'm in that routine. So it was like, I'm like, Oh my God, I'm walking the dog exactly like I did for the last 300 yep. nights. Like same time. <laughs> Do people – I feel yeah. like I see the same people on my same route. And oh, they, absolutely. And they must and look they at me. they shift
1: with you. Like they're like – like the time of year changes so you go a different time of day and they shift with you. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I'm just on like a rhythm with this guy in my neighborhood. And so like for years and years and years we're just being like, hey, every day. <laughs>
0: well, I have this – speaking of which, there's a guy in my neighborhood and I'm not sure – I can't say – I'm not sure where he lives. I worry that he lives in his car. Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know. I could be totally wrong. Uh, I just, I see him and I never know. He's always like standing out on the street. Sometimes he's drinking a beer (laughs) (laughs) and I've started talking to him and he's the nicest guy. It turns out he's a writer. He's got a project that he's trying to sell in Hollywood right now. And he's like playing this waiting game. And I've been there before any writer who's tried to sell their work has been there before. So we just shoot the shit and commiserate, um, And I realize as I think about it, I'm like, I've been seeing this guy either driving around my neighborhood in his car or just like kind of hanging out in the street for years now. Right. And it's now advanced to the point where we're on a first name basis and like know a little bit about each other and like, we'll stop, you know, stop and talk for 10 or 15 minutes. But he's become part of like the furniture of my life and vice versa. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Um, but it's I guess that's an outgrowth of having a uh, a routine. Sometimes it can yield these things It might not have otherwise happened. Yeah,
1: there is a, a noticing you don't do unless you spend a lot of time in your lap. I mean, I feel like that's one of the things that um, if you had the the time to sort of to do that or you're working from home during the pandemic, it's sort of the privilege to be in one safe place. Um Everybody did all this noticing. Like, everybody got to know the animals that live in their backyards, or like, you know, um, I think, you know, uh, Jess worked from home through the, uh, still working home mostly. Um, and uh, like, she can identify the individual birds that like come to our yard. You know, she's like, these are the three curved bill thrashers that live here. And this is the one with this beak. And it's like, you know, they, they've stopped being birds. They've started being like individuals. And it's just by having time to have that attention, right? Just, she sits on the backyard and works on her laptop and like, sees them living, you know, and, and, um, I don't know, it's pretty, it's pretty great to just realize this space that's been behind your house for a couple of years has these individuals in it, or your neighbor has these individuals in it, these people, you know, it's so easy to be disconnected in an American city or an American suburb. You know, it's nice to have it sort of populate with things that are worthy of your attention and always were, but you didn't give it to them.
0: Yeah. 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 And I, 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 I totally, uh, relate to this notion of, nature, revealing itself to you in layers, you know, you'll notice one thing and then you'll notice another. Uh, I find too, just like if you, if you hike a certain trail or you run a certain trail or take a certain walk in your neighborhood over and over and over again, over a long span of time, you start to pick up things about like the rhythm of the seasons. Like, oh, this tree sheds its leaves this time of year. Mm-hmm. or the air smells this way this time of year and like, Oh yeah, this is great. This is when the wildflowers bloom. And you know, you start to be able to look forward to these things and, and you would never get it unless you were out there consistently. Um, and I, I I'm not even necessarily looking for it in a specific way. It's just right. kind of, it happens enough. Eventually it gets through my thick skull. <laughs>
1: Yeah, uh, you know it's good. I think especially with so many people, you know, moving around the country or going different places for work, just because the way things are, it it can be very isolating to be in a place where you don't know the rhythms. You forget that how much you relied on like just the the seasons to guide you emotionally. Living in the Midwest or something, right? It's like this is the time of year for this. This is the time of the year for this. And then Phoenix is like, hey, it's hot and sunny. <laughs> <But> like <so laughs> right i i almost feel like we talked to this the last time we talked but like i had this sensation of like time not passing when i moved here and i couldn't shake it and it, I, it became this like weird melancholy the first like year i was here where i was just like like the first semester ended and i had no i did no like emotional preparing for like feeling the end coming because like the season didn't change you know right. Right. um and like i, I I was like incapable of understanding what was happening because I just didn't know what time
0: of year it was. I mean, it was like made me a weird person. Like, <laughs> but I would, Weirder. I would, I will say this: I feel like because people will often be like, "Well, I need the seasons," and I get it. I grew up in the Midwest too, so I, I totally exists under- everywhere, right? Yeah, I was just gonna say that. Yeah. Like, I think living in the desert, it takes a while, or took me a while. To realize that there are detectable seasons, even Absolutely. if they are different from our traditional, like midwestern ideas of them, but like there's a fall, there is an autumn in Los Angeles, or at least you know, it seems like it's shrinking or something every year. But yeah, probably is, yeah. Um, but like I know that time of year, the, the Santa Ana winds kick up, the air smells a certain way. Um, obviously, there's some leaves that fall, and then desert winter is glorious. Like, yeah. It's great. It's the best, right? When you're in yep. like January, February, I imagine y- you must be loving it. Like it's just, uh, especially after a rain, like the rare rains that blow through, like the mm-hmm. way that the desert smells after a rain. Oh so good. So good. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know? yeah. And I didn't know that, you know, these are things I didn't know until I, I lived out here, but I don't know, there's little signs and, and I guess like the, the changes, uh, you know, that we normally associate with seasons aren't maybe as dramatic here or there as they are in other places, but they're not non-existent.
1: Yeah. And the, sometimes they are like, I mean, we have the, I'm sure you have these in LA too. Like every couple of years you have like a super bloom in the spring. You know, there's enough water came during monsoon season or something. And like the whole desert lights up, you know, and it's not just the flowers, even like the grasses and stuff get big and they, and they kind of stay all year. They get dry and then they stay. And I mean, it's a completely different, Desert the year we have a super bloom, then another one, and uh, you might, you know, it's like a weird thing. It's a different cycle. It's like maybe this is going to happen this year, and you're kind of waiting to see. And you know when it is. Um, I feel like I didn't notice the saguaros blooming maybe the first couple of years I was here, but it seems really weird because it's really dramatic. But it was like they were just cactus, you know? Right. And then I was like, now like I just watch it happen week after week to sort of change to them and how they put their flowers on and how the fruits come, and and it's like, how did I miss this? I was hiking just as much the first couple of years. Right. Like, why didn't I? Why didn't I see it? And it just didn't even occur to me. I don't know if it occurred to me that they flowered. Like, you know, like I don't know that I understood that cactus did that. You know, it was sort of wild, like because it wasn't a tree. I didn't know what it was doing. You know, um, yeah. Do you find when you go other places that you see more than you used to there? Because like when I go home to Michigan, I feel really lit up. Like it's now it's maybe the contrast or coming back or the way I taught myself to see the desert is now like a form of attention. I just bring back to the place I'm from. And I just feel like, like I go, my dad is like hunting land. I'll go out there and like work with them on it. And I just see so much more than I did seven years ago when I was there. And I can't tell if I'm just like a little quieter brain come a little older, if I'm just sort of more willing to be out there in it or something, but it does feel like training myself to see the desert has helped me see home too. Um, Which I guess is, great i mean sort of that's the ideal that that would happen
0: i like that theory because i like i say it's a subtler it requires a subtler attention to notice the differences um that are very real they're just not as in your face as, like oh the like the you know every deciduous tree (laughs) in the entire region just turned orange (laughs) right it's kind of hard to miss autumn or whatever the change of seasons in the midwest but um i don't know i think part of it too is quieter brained having a love of nature. Like I like to pay attention to these things, you know, and it seems like you're the same way. And, um, I I love going back to the Midwest. I think maybe having that baseline familiarity with it from my childhood. And I mean, you Mm -hmm. have it from the first 30 some odd years of your life. Like, I don't know, maybe you see it anew. like you go back and it's all familiar, but it's all foreign all at the same Mm -hmm. time. Yeah.
1: I think it feels, um, you know, there's so much, uh, especially I was home a couple of weeks ago uh, to see my parents for a couple of weeks after, you know, not being able to travel for a year and a half and I hadn't been home in a long time. And it was uh, even more dramatic just from having it withheld for a while, you know, in a certain way that was and just the relief of being there. You know, I, I don't know if you've gotten to travel or, or see your your folks or family after the pandemic, but I think the way in which kind of reentering some of those places after this dramatic year and a half we've had is like. It was both wild and mundane at the same time. So easy to sit in my parents' house or visit my aunts and uncles or something. And also felt like we were never gonna do it again. So like it just feels very like lit up. Um in a way that I, I I hope doesn't normalize too fast. Like it'd be nice for those things to feel special for a long time. Um mm-hmm. as opposed to like Oh, I got to go home for Christmas and see my family. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, you know, it's because it, travel's a drag sometimes, too. But, like, it's nice that it feels uh, spectacular in a certain way. That um, that's a source of wonder to sort of be in this place, I, a house I've been in for 40 years, you know.
0: Yeah. And I think the time of year that you went, I mean, that part of the country in early summer is just glorious and yeah. Coming out of like 120 degree heat and to suddenly be. Are, are you in where? I'm trying to remember where you grew up. Is it in Upper Michigan or? You no,
1: know, I grew up in like mid Michigan near like Saginaw Bay City. And I grew up a t- small town called Hemlock. So, um, sort of uh, maybe like 20 minutes from two like 60,000 person cities, but like a really small town. Um, but it was great. You know, I was there, my parents live on the country and I was there, uh, right at like apple blossom season, which felt like a nice thing at, after working on this book, you know, and, um, was there the day where the wind comes through and just blows all the apple blossoms off at once. Right. Like it just happens and it's like they're there and then they're not. And it was sort of a, it was a neat, uh, I don't know, like a nice coda sort of to like that kind of thing to be there for that. And, uh, um, I came home and planted trees with my dad. On his hunting land the first day I was there, and then, you know, watched his apple blossoms blow away. And I was like, all right, felt like a good capper to this, you know, thing I've been working on all <laughs> long is, time.
0: This is very Instagrammable. I feel like, uh, yeah, absolutely.
1: You know. Yeah. It was a weird, like, post research, right? Like, it's like, I'm like, oh, wait, no, now I know how apple tree planting goes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I just got to say, um, as we consider all of this stuff around climate change and what kind of future we might be facing. That uh, please advise your parents not to sell their land to Bill Gates and uh, keep that land. You're going to, you might need it. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's going to be, I, you know, I keep trying to lobby in my family. I'm like, I feel like Northern Latitude land is, it's a good investment right now. Forget about investing in apple, you know, Uh, speaking of apples, but uh, I think like you got to go try to find uh, a patch of real estate someplace near a lot of fresh water and biodiversity. And even yeah, then, I it's gonna be a mess, like but I mean yeah. it's your best shot, right? yeah, I think that's probably going to be true, yeah, that's give be nurse time so are you um are you working you mentioned earlier you said you couldn't say too much about it, but are you you're working on another book at this point? Yeah, maybe. I mean, you know how the sort of publishing
1: speed goes, right? You know, so I've sort of been working on something else for maybe a year and a half now. Um, going well, I think, you know. Um, but yeah, getting in that sort of deep, like 2nd draftish kind of thing, you know, which feels like when the work really, really gets done for me. Um, so it's a good phase. Uh, I think one of my goals, you know, publishing-wise is always to be deep in something about the time the book, the last book is coming out, right? I mean, I think you know i don't apple C comes out in 13 days from right now um hitting this place with nothing on the page is like a dire dire feeling you know you sort of have this like i'm never gonna write again you feel distracted and weird um and so having this other uh you know world in progress to sort of go hang out in is,
0: is a real joy at this stage and is it in is it cli-fi like is it uh that kind i think of... so
1: still um and i i can say this this doesn't seem like a, an odd thing to say this my not talking about it is the uh i don't know if this happens to you but it, when i'm working on a book uh in the middle of it it takes me like a half hour to tell somebody what it's about and then like you know the day the book comes out it'll take me 30 seconds right it's just one of those things where like it's hard to talk about without getting in the weeds um but yeah so still sort of ecological in scope um also uh this type set on, uh, on a different planet. So writing something more like purely, purely speculative um, felt really hard to write another like near future Earth book right after writing one. You know, like it just it seemed almost impossible, the idea of like inhabiting that space directly again um, or even weird. Like I think I'm still kind of living in Appleseeds one. Right. It'd be like inventing another future It felt really difficult. Um, and so some of what I was talking about before, about like getting to design things differently or, or getting to solve some problems while focusing on these other ones is sort of interesting. Um, but maybe getting to do something a little more um, purely fantastical and sort of invented from the ground up, which has been really fun. It's sort of something I haven't done before. Um, everything's always been set in a version of our, our world. So it's been neat to sort of have its own sort of fully immersive space. has been a good time. And, you know, of course, like, you're like, am I good at this? Do I know how to do this? (laughs) (laughs) All all those fun thoughts, right? (laughs) (laughs) Which is, I think, you know, you should always feel that a little bit, right? You know, sort of like the book should feel impossible
0: until it becomes possible, you know? Well, I uh, certainly had a sense reading Appleseed of um, how you might have felt. I mean, I certainly felt like how this it felt impossible to me reading it to write something like this because <laughs> of the amount of mental work and imaginative work that goes into it. So kudos to you for rendering multiple worlds um, mm-hmm. that feel palpably real and are peopled and otherwise, um, you know, by characters who are three dimensional and, um somehow finding a way to kind of braid it all together and I will be very interested to I guess this would be your first extra like fully extraterrestrial yeah book. so yeah, I don't even think I've done it in a short
1: story I think you know everything was probably pretty earth but even if it seemed like super weird it's probably that so it feels good to sort of branch out um I don't know it's a good thing seems nice to sort of get to uh I think one of my like long-term writer goals is like to like write a book in like every genre I like. And as you know, sometimes I try to do five of them at once, but like <laughs> I, I feel like um that seems like one way to keep things fresh is just to keep being like, oh I like this kind of book, I like this kind of book, I like this kind of book. Let's keep branching out that way. So, uh yeah, I feel like that's part of the challenge or part of the enjoyment that gets you to the desk. Awesome.
0: Well, congratulations to you. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me again. Glad we got to feature this one uh in the book club and just wish you well the rest of the summer stay cool uh also get some sleep i mean i know it's right. it's nice to run in the desert but like you know getting up at three forty-five. my god you must oh born- no i just go to bed at like 8 30 every night it's- okay 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 good good uh well it's nice to touch base with you and hopefully next time around uh it's in person again once we've fully moved beyond uh you know this phase of existence yeah. that we've been in yeah thanks so much Brad. All right, folks, there you have it. That is Matt Bell. And his new novel, Appleseed, is available from Custom House Books, the official July pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. You can find Matt on the internet at mattbell.com. You can follow him on Twitter. His handle over there is at mdbell. What is it? Let me see. At mdbell79. Again, the novel is called Appleseed. Available right now. Go get your copy immediately. The Other People podcast is offered freely. The entire archive of this show, more than 700 episodes and counting, is available to you, the listener, free of charge. It's a listener-supported show. If you like this program, if you listen regularly and you get something from it and you have the means... I hope you'll consider supporting the show. You can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. For as little as a dollar a month, you can support this show. There are different tiers, different levels of support. As you move up the scale, you can get stuff. You can get a tote bag, a t-shirt, a coffee mug. I will wish you a happy birthday. I'll write you a postcard. Patreon.com slash other ppl pod if you are so inclined to tip your server if you have something to say to me you can write to me the email address for the show is letters at other letters at other the other people podcast has its own app it too is free the other people with brad listy app go get it wherever you get your apps This program also has its own YouTube channel. Did you know that? The Other People with Brad Listy YouTube channel is now on YouTube. Track it down and smash the subscribe button. Another great way to support this show is to rate it and review it on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher or Spotify or wherever. Rate it and review it. It helps other listeners find the show when you do that sort of thing. Okay? I think that's it. Who's up next? I don't know.